When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Good evening and welcome to Wrestling Rewind. I am your host, Angel Amoroso, and I am here with my co-host, the Iron Man, Tommy Cairo. Tommy? What's up, Angel? How you doing, everybody? Uh, Tonight on Wrestling Rewind, we are introducing Wrestling Archives. Uh, And in Wrestling Archives, we are giving you the the history of professional wrestling. Uh, And and this evening is exactly what we will be focusing on, is the history of professional wrestling in the United States. So let's get right into that. Maybe I can learn a couple things. Right. This is the whole point of Wrestling Rewind, is to learn your wrestling history so that then you know uh, how to appreciate it and you know what you're watching right now. And uh, so professional wrestling in the United States until the 1920s was viewed as a legitimate sport. Uh, This view did not endure into the 1930s as professional wrestling became identified with modern theatrics or admitted fakeness, kayfabe, moving away from being a showcase for a true competition. The scripted nature of the art has made Critics view it as an an illegitimate sport, particularly in comparison to boxing, mixed martial arts, amateur wrestling, and the real sport itself, wrestling. No major promoter or wrestler denies that modern professional wrestling has predetermined matches and outcomes. Though the advent of wrestling in the 1950s and cable in the 1980s, professional wrestling began appearing in powerful media outlets, reaching never-before-seen number of viewers. It became an international phenomenon with expansion of the World Wrestling Federation throughout the 90s. Professional wrestling achieved highs in both viewers and financial success during a time of fierce competition amongst competitors competing promotions such as WWF, World Championship Wrestling, and Extreme Championship Wrestling. The nature of professional wrestling changed dramatically to better fit television, enhancing character traits and storylines. Television also helped many wrestlers break into mainstream media, becoming influential celebrities and icons of popular culture. In the United States, the first golden age of professional wrestling in the 1940s and 1950s was popularized by Gorgeous George that gained uh, mainstream popularity. Uh, Followed in the second golden age in the 1980s and 1990s by the likes of Hulk Hogan, Andre the Giant, Macho Man Randy Savage, Ric Flair, Rowdy Roddy Piper, Coco Beware, The Ultimate Warrior, Sting, Brett the Hitman Hart, Shawn Michaels, The Undertaker, Stone Cold Steve, Steve Austin, The Rock, and many more. How did Coco Beware get in there? <laughs> I don't know, but he was. So uh, the beginnings from the 1860s to the 1840s. So we're going way back here in wrestling history. So, you know, sit down and uh, maybe get some popcorn and a drink because yeah. it's long. So the carnival days of professional wrestling in the sense of traveling performers paid for mass entertainment in stage matches began in the post-Civil War periods in the late 1860s and 1870s. During this time, wrestlers were often athletes with amateur wrestling experience who competed at traveling carnivals with carnies, working as their promoters and bookers. 
grand circuses, including wrestling exhibitions, quickly enhancing them through colorful costumes and fictional biographies for entertainment, disregarding their competitive nature. Wrestling exhibits during the late 19th century were also shown across the United States in countless athletic shows or at shows, uh, where experienced wrestlers often op- were, had open challenges to the audience. It was at these shows, often done for high-stakes gambling purposes, uh, that the nature of the sport changed through uh, the competition interests of three groups of people. The impresarios, thank you, the carnies, and the barnstormers. The impresarios were the managers who chose how to wrestle, could gain fame and interest among the fans, creating personas and improvising matches to make them more interesting. Carnies who traveled and wrestled at these events used tricks to protect protect their money and reputation during competitions, devising little-known and often dangerous wrestling moves called hooks. Hooks are legal in conventional amateur wrestling, but have high rates of success against even the most athletic and experienced of competitors, essentially removing rules from professional wrestling. In in addition, some spectators capable of beating the carnies roam the country to compete in open matches, open challenges, setting side bets to make money. The barnstormers competed as traveling wrestlers and did and often cooperated with the carnies to stage the matches, <laughs> providing enormous profits for both sides in betting. Uh, through in- the interest in money-making among the three groups, wrestling became a business-oriented entertainment venue, distinguishing itself further and further from its authentic amateur wrestling background. Yeah, you see, now, a point there real quick, Angel, is that they had good intentions, okay? Sure. But when you guys in a headlock, for 30 minutes, nobody really wants to see that. So unless you're hardcore MMA, grappling, Valley Tudo, whatever, specialized, there's people that will watch it that understand that there's something going on that you can't, the average eye can't see, but in a minute the guy's going to be turned over and have his hand cranked up to his, his neck. His exactly. Arm so, you know, they had good intentions. It just, it wouldn't work. So if you're going to make money, you got to do what you got to do. So you work the matches and everybody gets, you know, everybody gets paid, hopefully. Right. And the moves have to come from somewhere at some time. And even if they were making them up, someone had to make them up at some time, you know, call them hooks or shoots or whatever you call them. But, you know, someone had to invent them. And these are the gentlemen who did. So um, wrestling performers were arranged in a pyramid hierarchy of fame and money based strictly on athletic talent. The lowest were the journeymen young performers with promise and some skill, but who relied mainly on showmanship to gain fans. The actual wrestlers called shooters because of their ability to shoot or real fight matches competitively were more successful and less common. At the top were the elites or the hookers named for their ability to use arcane uh, wrestling hooks to inflict damage and serious injury on the competition without effort. Uh, wrestlers considered themselves among uh, a select group and often kept the fact that their sport was commonly faked to an extent in high secrecy. They used a jargon of their own, uh, often shared with carnies, uh, com- to communicate so the audience would not understand them, including the word kayfabe. Yeah, and if we got time later, let's go back to kayfabe. I want to tell how I know what, like, what is not the common uh, reason for that, but I know the real reason why they use that word. Okay, well, let's let's get into the word kayfabe for a second, since you brought it up. Okay. In professional wrestling, kayfabe is also uh, work or work, it means. As a noun, it is the portrayal of a staged event within the industry as real or true, specifically the portrayal of competition, rivalries, and relationships between participants as being genuine and not staged. The term kayfabe has evolved to also become a code word of sorts for maintaining this reality within the direct or indirect presence of the general public. All right. Now, it does not say origins of kayfabe, does it? Let's see. Where did that come from? Well, here's how it came. 
Okay, kayfabe in the United States is often seen as the suspension of disbelief that is used to create the non-wrestling aspects of promotions, such as feuds, angles, and gimmicks in a manner similar to other forms of fictional entertainment. In relative terms, a wrestler breaking kayfabe during a show would be likened to an actor breaking character on camera. Also, since wrestling is performed in front of a live audience whose interactions with the show is crucial to its success, kayfabe can be compared to breaking the fourth wall in acting since hardly any conventional fourth wall exists to begin with. In general, everything in professional wrestling show to some extent is scripted or kayfabe even though at the times it is portrayed as real life. Uh, So what what this was was a code, okay? On the road, uh, you have to make calls. You don't always have a big, you know, an office with somebody's phone you can use. So you're on the road as a worker and again, mixed with the carning in the beginning. Okay. They were traveled together. So to let the people know at home that you made it safely to the next town, you got on a payphone and you got the operator and you said, I like to make a collect call to this number. And it's from K Fabian, or I like to make a collect call to K Fabian. K like K the woman Fabian's her last name. Okay. The operator says to your people at home, do you accept a call from Kate Fabian? They say no. Boom, you hang up. Message is sent. You're actually on a line at the same time together, but everybody knows now at home that you have made it, you're safe at your next town because God knows how long it took them to go from one spot to the other, way back. I mean, if you go way back, they were by horse and carriage. I mean, what do you think they were setting up carnivals? They didn't have, way back then, that's where it started, so... That's how okay, the real, real origin of Cape Babe is. So you let the people know at home without anybody paying for a phone call. <laughs> exactly. Okay, I just want some through some information on the share screen there. If anyone wants to get into reading uh, the rest of the definition of Cape Babe on top of what Tommy said there, uh, all very informative to get you know what it means. So now we're moving into the farmer. Burns and Frank Gotch error. Oh, yeah. So during the late 19th century and early 20th century, wrestling was dominated by Martin Farmer Burns and his pupil Fred Frank Gotch. Burns was renowned as a competitive wrestler who, despite never weighing more than 160 pounds during his wrestling career, fought over 6,000 wrestlers at a time when most were competitive contests and lost fewer than 10 of them. He also gained the reputation for training some of the best wrestlers of the era, including Gotch, uh, known as one of America's sports first sports superstars. Gotch, regarded as peerless at his peak, was the first to actually claim the world's undisputed heavyweight championship by beating all contenders in North America and Europe. He became wow. the world's champion by beating European wrestling champion uh, George Hackenschmidt. Oh, yeah. Both in 1908 and 1911, seen by modern wrestling, wrestling historians as two of the most significant matches in wrestling history. Yeah, Hackenschmidt was like a freaking house, you know, built. A lot of the guys were back then. like yeah, just know, big, big brawny guys. Who knew if it was juice or like, you know, just natural? No, uh, I'll tell you what. A lot of farmers and a lot of beef and a lot of eggs and a lot of milk and dairy. Natural. Just and nature. Lifting up bales of hay, you know. Big good old boys, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the popularity of wrestling during the early 20th century was highest in the Midwest, uh, where ethnic European communities, many of them German, Polish, Czech, Hungarian, Greek, and Scandinavian in ancestry, continued to carry on fighting styles practice in their home nations. At this time, during the late 19th century and early 20th century, the majority of wrestling was still competitive, and it was immensely popular. In fact, wrestling's popularity was second only to baseball from 1900 to the early 1920s, launching trading cards and competitive wrestling programs in colleges, high schools, and athletic clubs, uh, legacies that have endured to this present day. Yep. 
wrestling's popularity experienced a dramatic tailspin in 1950 to 1920, becoming distanced from the American public because of widespread doubt of its legitimacy and status as a competitive sport. Wrestlers during the time uh, recount it as largely faked by the 1880s. It also warned due to Gotch's retirement in 1913 and no new wrestling superstars emerging to captivate the audience's attention. So, well, it's the ups and downs. It's uh, you know that that's been that way forever. Yeah, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, next, we move on to the expansion era, the 1920s to the 1930s, and this was uh, okay. Following the retirement of Frank Gotch, professional wrestling, except in the Midwest, where legitimate wrestlers such as Michigan's Poison Ivy took on all comers at state fairs and was losing popularity fast. Media attention focused on the illegitimacy of wrestling instead of its athleticism. And without a superstar like Gotch, no major personality reached a wide fan base. In response, three professional wrestlers, Ed Lewis, Billy Sando, Sandow and Toots Mont joined to form their own promotion in the 1920s, modifying their in-ring product to attract fans. The three were referred to as the Gold Dust Trio due to their financial success. Their promotion was the first to use time limit matches, flashy new holds, and signature maneuvers. They also popularized tag team wrestling, introduced new tactics such as distracting the referee to make the match more exciting. The trio's legacy, uh, lasting legacy, and perhaps their greatest innovation within professional wrestling was the use of a regular group of wrestlers for a package show. Rather than paying traveling wrestlers to perform on certain dates and combining wrestlers in matchups when, when they were available, they decided to keep wrestlers for months and years at a time, allowing long-term angles and feuds to develop. Uh, this was the key to their success. They were able to keep wrestlers from their competition and were able to have regular wrestling cards. Their business succeeded uh, quickly and gaining popularity for its freshness and unique approach to wrestling, a traveling stable of wrestlers. Uh, The trio gained popularity nationwide during their best years, roughly 1920 to 1925, when they performed in the Eastern Territory, acquiring fans from the highly exposed big cities. The trio was dealt a severe blow by Stanislaus Zabisco when he beat the rookie Wayne Munn for the World Heavyweight Championship against the original booking. Munn, who had been recruited to wrestling and pushed to the level of champion in only a few months, was Trio's new star and main attraction. Zabisco was supposed to lose to Munn, but refused to follow along, beating (laughs) Munn so decisively and throughout thoroughly that the referee awarded him the title to prevent a riot. In addition... Bisco quickly dropped the title to Joe Stetcher, a rival of Ed Lewis, making the situation worse for the trio. Wow. Now, Joe Stetcher was a hell of a, a talent. Um, yeah, it's just that Zabisco guy, man. I, I can't say that I blame him. He probably spoke for the whole locker room saying, you know, we've been here all this time busting our butts, and this guy comes in, and he's not hes not a shooter. It's not like we have to – it's Luke Dez, and we have to shut our mouths or we're going to get twisted into a pretzel. You know, mm-hmm. so you got to, you know, you got to give him, I give him credit for that. You know? Especially at the time where people were questioning the, yeah. the legitimacy of everything. When you have someone that is there and can actually out wrestle you, then you can't deny them a title. And that's, that's pretty admirable. I'm sure they slipped him a little bit. They could have said, break his arm, you know. <laughs> they could have, but yeah. you know. Back then. Okay, so Stesher, although um, an able booker, was afraid of losing his championship, refusing to wrestle many contenders as a result. This made it impossible for the trio to retrieve it. They responded by calling the Munn-Zabisco match illegitimate and reinstated Munn as the champion, but quickly had him drop it to Lewis. This left two champions, Ed Lewis and Joe Stesher who were regarded as the dominant wrestlers of the period. Stetcher and Lewis agreed to a unification match years later in 1928 when Stetcher gave in and lost the title to Lewis. 
By this time, uh, the Zbisco double cross had already caused an irreparable damage, distracting uh, the, from the trio's dominance over wrestling industry. In addition, the buildup of Munn, followed by such a humiliating loss, had devalued his title and credibility as a major wrestling superstar permanently. Yeah, well, that's the promoter's fault for doing that. You know, he set him up for failure. Yeah, it's I mean, you can't stick people in. You know, there's plenty of examples of that, you know, but uh, still it happens, you know. So next we move on to the growth of wrestling promotions. In March of 1887, Evan Lewis defeated Joe Acton for the American Catches Can Can uh, Championship in Chicago. Soon, every wrestling promotion had created its own championship, which was considered each company's pride and glory. As promotions were attempting to become nationally renowned, acquired rival championships and marked, championships marked victory. In the 1930s and 1940s, small wrestling promotions had fierce competitions with, with each other, often stealing talent and invading enemy companies to win over fans, with inner promotional matches occurring nationwide, the promotions were uh, vying for dominance in 1948. Wrestling reached new heights after a loose federation was formed between the independent wrestling companies. This was known as the National Wrestling Alliance. In the late 1940s and 1950s, the NWA chose Luthes to unify the various world championships into a single world heavyweight title. Thez's task was not easy, as some promoters reluctant to lose face went so far as to shoot title matches to keep their own champions popular with the fans. Yeah, well, if they were good enough, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, why not? You want to focus on your own. Uh, Now we're moving on to the television area. I'm sorry, the television era, 1950s to the 1970s. the list of pro wrestling studio television shows was taped on December 18, 1942 at WRBG TV in, let me get this right. Schenectady. Sorry, New York at a time when few Americans owned television sets. We were just talking about this the yeah. other day. The earliest successful recurring wrestling program was Hollywood Wrestling in Los Angeles, which debuted on KTLA in 1947 and was syndicated in numerous U.S. cities by 1952. From the advent of television, professional wrestling matches began to be aired during the 1950s, both locally and nationally, reaching a larger fan base than ever before. This was uh, an enormous time of growth for professional wrestling as rising demand and national expansion made it much more popular and lucrative form of entertainment than in decades previous. This was called the golden age. For the wrestling industry, it was also a time of great change in both the character and professionalism of wrestlers as a result of the appeal of television. Wrestling fit naturally with television because it was easy to understand, had drama, comedy, and colorful characters, and was inexpensive for for production. I guess back then it was. From 1948 to 1955, each of the three major television networks broadcasted professional wrestling shows, the largest supporter being the Dumont Television Network. It had ended up being uh, WOR Channel 9, which is where the wrestling I watched originated from. Uh, New York, New Jersey, New York. Yeah, uh, it was coming. They were taping it from Washington D.C. at the Capitol Arena. Um, that was that heavyweight wrestling from Washington. It was called, and uh, that's what I grew up on in the very, very beginning. But you know, the TV thing—it didn't cost much to produce at that time. Plus, if it was popular, they were selling commercial time, so you know right. they were making money. Everybody was doing real good back then. <laughs> And then we move on to gimmick characters. Uh, Gorgeous George became one of the biggest stars during this period and gained media attention for his outrageous character, which was described as flamboyant and charismatic. 
Already popular among wrestling fans, he became renowned after comedian Bob Hope noticed his performance in the Hollywood Legion Stadium in 1945 and 1946 and began to use him for jokes on his radio station. Wow. (laughs) Bob Hope got involved with him. The publicity brought many people into wrestling events, bringing his stardom to a high point where promoters and television stations alike were paying generously for his performances. Gorgeous George's impact on wrestling has been interpreted in many ways, uh, dem- demonstrating how fast television changed the product from athletics to performance. His legacy was the enormous change in wrestling personas he inspired. Before him, wrestlers imitated ethnic terrors, such as Nazis and Arabs, uh, let's throw Russians in there. But his success birthed a more individualistic and narcissistic form of character. He was also among the first to use entrance music. Yeah. Pomp and circumstance. All right. So along uh, with Randy Savage, followed along with that one. Yeah. Uh, the television changed the on-screen product in many other ways as well. Originally, the impact on television was not well planned for this time period. Uh, promotional spots, which are now used as pre-match rants by wrestlers to warm up the crowds, were often used for simple greetings and welcomes to the local crowds. Missing in-ring personalities, uh, boosts, and character skits during this period. No one would discuss uh, promos before shooting them, and promoters usually would not spend time helping wrestlers in front of the camera. I don't think they needed to. Back no, then. and you know, as long as you knew what town you were in. So don't forget, you're sitting there and you're rattling off six uh, promos for different towns. So as long as you got the town and you don't say maybe the exact same thing, which wouldn't even matter because they're not going to see it. They're only seeing it where they're seeing it. You know, that's whatever wherever the promos are shown. You know, so you, you can get away with murder that way. I mean, you can use the same one practically. You know, right. you gotta make sure you got the, the, the town and the date. You know, the Saturday night, the 26th at the Omni, wherever you're at. So other than that, if the, they were halfway decent, they should have been able to, you know, pull it off. But now, Gorgeous George was known to be very socially shy and that he was somewhat close to being inebriated every time he, he went out. He wow. Had, he, he had to. He he. He couldn't, you know, he was very, very introverted. So, wow. to, yeah. <laughs> I did not know that. Yep. We'll get into that sometime later. I would actually like to look that yeah. up because that is a part of history. Uh, next, we get into uh, competitive competitiveness compromised. And that's this hour. Uh, professional wrestlers themselves began to change. As popularity grew during the mid-1950s, many more wrestlers joined the ranks of the business, and the number of professional wrestlers grew to over 2,000, far more than ever before. Many new wrestlers began fresh without notions of athletic sportsmanship that was popular in competitive arenas. However, they began with dreams of becoming televised superstars. This proved especially true as the product began to lose athletic talent, relying on blood and acrobatic performances. Mm. Uh, wrestling competitive, wrestling's competitiveness was degraded by television, a fact regarded by many in the business as a natural effect of television over competition. The New York Wrestling Company office, an early precursor, precursor, that would eventually evolve into what is now WWE soon became dominant. It refused to use competitive wrestlers and instead focused on attracting televised entertainment. Perhaps the first of uh, the more comic book like characters known to professional wrestling today was Antonio Rocca. Uh, comparatively weak in wrestling ability, his marketable personality and barefoot acrobatics attracted fans and made him a national superstar, especially popular among Italian and Hispanic fans. The new New York wrestling office used him to revive the promotion on television and found him far easier to exploit than a more athletically skilled wrestler, enabling the office to negotiate wrestler contracts tremendously in its favor. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, I, you know, it, it doesn't make any difference if a guy makes money, that's what it's about. And the promoters don't really care. 
So I guess if you're in the back, you got to deal with it, you know, either step up your game and, you know, maybe add some of that to your uh, character. I mean, I don't know what else you could do. Exactly. After all, it is about money and it is about entertainment and whether the purists like it or not, it's what it puts asses in the seats. And if that's what it is and that's what it is, I mean, my son will show me a video and I'll have 9 million and I'm like, it's stupid, but this is what you're talking about. You know, people today like, wrestling differently than we were brought up on and is I don't know how that's going to change <laughs> you know? and maybe it won't <laughs> maybe it won't so the moderate slowdown error uh, by the late 1950s professional wrestling had lost its high ratings and producers realizing that they had overexposed it soon dropped most wrestling shows from their lineups the remaining televised wrestling promoters had small local syndicated shows which networks producers placed as late night and Saturday night or or Sunday morning afternoon fillers rather than signature programming. Promoters Mm -hmm. use localized television as a weapon for eliminating the competition by purchasing airtime from rival territories, effectively putting them out of business. So all all they had to do is pop it in their time, buy that time slot and put your product, insert your product in there. Now the people are standing there like, we're watching this for like eight years, you know. <laughs> Where are my guys? <laughs> this here is a map of the NWA territory system in North America. So uh, all those lit up parts are yeah, and uh, the, the, NWA the, book, uh, the Monopoly, uh, the NWA book. That's that's a book to read. That tells you everything that went on. Yeah, we'll we'll get to that in future episodes. Can't wait yeah. for that. So the NWA was the most dominant wrestling body in the 1950s, and a large number of wrestling promotions had been under its leadership. Many promoters, however, viewed it as a crooked tyrant holding back innovative changes in the sport. It was during this time that several promoters found reason to leave the organization, managing to find nine uh, niches, niches in the United States. Uh, The most prominent of these were the American Wrestling Association, AWA, which became the most popular wrestling promotion during the 1960s, and the New York-based World Wrestling Federation, renamed WWF in 1979. As a top wrestler in the 1950s, Vern Gagne formed his own wrestling promotion in the NWA in 1957, which soon became the lead promotion with Gagne winning the World Heavyweight Championship of Omaha. After unsuccessfully lobbying for a title match with the NWA champion, however, Gagne broke away from the NWA in 1960, renaming his promotion the American Wrestling Association and making it the dominant organization of the 1960s, named the AWA World Heavyweight Championship. Soon after, Gagne was uh, the top wrestler and engaged in many feuds with heel wrestlers, most notably Nick Bockwinkle, and was the AWA's top draw until his retirement in 1981. Bruno Martino carried the WWF title during the 1960s and 1970s. His brawling power moves and personal charisma helped him become the most popular wrestler during this time period, during the time period when MSG was the WWF's primary arena. San Martino headlined more garden cards than any other wrestler, 211 to be exact, including 187 sellouts. Yeah, and there were like 22,000 people and then like another 3,000 turned away and then a couple thousand in a felt forum, which is another section of Madison Square Garden on closed circuit TV before anybody did closed circuit TV. Funny thing is you just got the feed. So you got no commentary, nothing. You just heard the announcer and you watched the match. Pretty huge building to fill. (laughs) So uh, the AWA was no longer the top promotion after the WWF rejoined the NWA. Uh, The the AWA reached new heights, however, after powerhouse wrestler Hulk Hogan gained nationwide attention from starring in Rocky III and became a solid fan favorite. I thought he was in Rocky I, actually. Uh, No, I don't think so. Okay. Despite Hogan being the AWA's top draw, Ganya would not let him be champion, believing technical wrestlers like him and Nick Bockwinkle should be the focus of the wrestling company. Uh, Since founding the AWA, Ganya had built the company off of technical wrestling. Hogan left in 1983... 
irreparably damaging the AWA. In spite of all this, the NWA as a unit was still on top and gained huge dominance dominance through Georgia Championship Wrestling, becoming the first nationally broadcasting broadcasted wrestling program on cable television in 1979. It aired on TBS Network by 1981. GCW became the most watched show on cable television. Wow. Yeah, that's evolved into World Championship Wrestling eventually. But exactly. Yeah, it was awesome. And then we have the explosion mm-hmm. error in 1980 to 2002. So we're already, uh, we're getting into a, a rewind that goes back to, wow, so we're going on 20 years. Uh, yeah. 20, 30 years. That's, so that's the 19- time frame right there. Yours right. Free. The 1980s wrestling boom. This was Hulk Hogan. Uh, so there. The 1980s represented professional wrestling's greatest period of television entertainment, reaching widespread popularity amongst American youth, as well as producing some of most spectacular characters in comparison to the declining support of the media outlets during the 1960s and 1970s, professional wrestling, uh, notably the emerging of the World Wrestling Federation, the WWF, abridged from WWWF in 1979. They have to keep mentioning that. Yeah. Uh, great exposure through its reappearance on network television. The WWF expanded nationally through the acquisition of talent from competing promotions. And because it was the only company to air televised wrestling nationally, became synonymous with the industries monopolizing the industry and the fan base. The WWF's owner, Vince McMahon, revolutionized the sport by coining the term sports entertainment. To describe his on-screen product, admitting its fakery as well as enhancing its appeal to children. That was just so he could get around paying uh, athletic commissions. He didn't exactly. Do it you call else. you call it entertainment, and then it's not a sport anymore, yeah. and it's, you know, a different ball of wax. So the WWF became the most colorful and well-known wrestling brand to children because of its child-oriented characters, soap opera dramaticism, and cartoon-like personas. Most notable was the muscular Hulk Hogan who marked the 1980s with his all-American persona. His sheer size, colorful attire, and charisma and extravagance made his main events into excellent rating draws. By January 1984, Hogan's legions of fans and his dominant role in the industry was termed Hulkamania. Hulk sold out arenas all across the United States and earned the WWF millions of dollars, making it the number one entity in all of professional wrestling. Moments after Hogan defeated the Iron Sheik for the WWF World Heavyweight title, Gorilla Monsoon famously proclaimed, Hulkamania is here. Hmm. Around this time, faces and heels became a more generally obvious and important part of wrestling. Gimmicks were more popular, and it widely became a popular sport again. Uh, Wrestling was generally seen more as a form of fun and entertainment, however, uh, than an official sport. It was more about building up face heel feuds such as Rowdy Roddy Piper, Hulk Hogan, and going into big blow-off matches, uh, which people loved. The WWF broke its way into the mainstream entertainment and regularly uh, brought its celebrities in for events. The rock and wrestling connection was a period of cooperation and cross-promotion between the WWF and elements of the music industry. Uh, the WWF attracting a degree of mainstream attention with Cindy Lauper joining in 1984 and WWF personalities appeared in her music videos. Hogan gained mainstream popularity for appearing in the film Rocky three, reaching to an even greater level of celebrity in 1985, Hulk Hogan's rock and wrestling an animate an animated television series starring the character of Hogan expanded Hogan's young fan base in the meanwhile, the NWA's renowned and highly successful territory system was slowly dying, with Jim Crockett promotions becoming the center of the entire NWA, while the WWF had their major stars at almost all of their shows. 
the NWA could only manage to have a few stars at on one show at a time. So as to promote the product in every territory. So after the WWF gained huge dominance <clears throat> with WrestleMania, Crockett responded to the success of the WWF as a successfully acquired time slots on TBS and would continue to buy out the NWA promotions between 1985 and 1987 as well. The advent of nationwide wrestling, uh, tele- I'm sorry, nationwide television also weakened the system. Wrestlers could no longer travel to a new market and establish a new persona uh, since fans already knew who they were. Meanwhile, McMahon took advantage of this phenomenon by purchasing purchasing promotions all over the continent in order to produce a widely popular nationwide television program and make the WWF the only viewing choice. So creating Mm -hmm. a monopoly, pretty much. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what kills, that's how the business dies, you know. Where are you going to get your guys from? Exactly. And when they're all lumped into one place. So to to counter the NWA's primary supercard starcades, the WWF created its flagship show, WrestleMania. Available on 135 closed circuit networks, the show was huge success with Hogan, who won in the main event, going to appear on the cover of Sports Illustrated. After the swimsuit edition, it was the magazine's bestseller. And following WrestleMania, four WWF programs were amongst the 10 most watched shows on cable television. Professional wrestling began to become mainstream, thanks in large part to the appeal of Hulkamania amongst children. Large television networks also took wrestling into their weekly programming, including Saturday night's main event premiering on NBC in 1985 and the first wrestling show to permit to air primetime wrestling since 1955. ESPN also began airing professional wrestling for the first time, uh, first airing pro wrestling USA shows, which were created as an alliance between the NWA and AWA <clears throat> in an effort to counter the national success of the WWF was gaining and later AWA shows after Pro Wrestling USA fell apart by 1986 uh, the WWF also became an international success too so Wrestlemania 3 with a reported record attendance of 93,170 people is widely considered to be the pinnacle of the period the episode of the main event is the highest rated professional wrestling televised show to date with 15.2 rating and 33 million viewers. Both had a main event featuring Hulk Hogan battling Andre the Giant for the WWF World Heavyweight Championship. Following WrestleMania 3, the WWF added its franchise and created both Survivor Series to the counter programming against Starcade directly on pay per view and the Royal Rumble to counter programming against the Bunkhouse Stampede originally on the USA cable networks before transitioning to pay per view in subsequent years. The NWA responded by creating Clash of the Champions on TBS to compete with WrestleMania. For free, though. <laughs> right, exactly. For free. For free. Uh, Wrestling promotions across the United States feared being forced into bankruptcy by the WWF. Uh, They began to unify and conglomerate under more centralized leadership rather than continue independently. Competing promotions aired better talent and attempted to regain their audiences. In late 1987, Continental Wrestling Association wrestler and co-promoter Jerry Lawler had joined the AWA and helped establish a relationship between AWA and CWA, which was formerly an NWA territory that would be somewhat of a rival of Pro Wrestling USA. In 1988, the struggling World Class Wrestling Association, formerly known as World Class Championship Wrestling, until it withdrew from the 19 from the NWA in 1986, and Continental Wrestling Federation, uh, known as Continental Championship Wrestling, until it was brought out in 1988. Bought out in 1988. Excuse me. Uh, it would also take part in this alliance which agreed to unify the WCWA and AWA heavyweight titles at Super Clash 3. Super Clash 3 was not a success, however, uh, and the second 
Pro Wrestling USA Alliance soon fell apart. CWA co-promoter Jerry Jarrett then bought out the WCWA and renamed the unified company as the USWA, United States Wrestling Association. Jerry Lawler also took his AWA title to Jerry Jarrett's promotion, and the belts were renamed as a USWA heavyweight title. The AWA was able to create a new belt, but the, at the end of 1990, company's profits had dwindled so badly that the company went out of business, and NWA president Bob Geigel also withdrew from the NWA by December of 1987 and attempted to revive his Heart of America Sports Attractions as a national promotion known as World Wrestling Alliance, but would go out of business by 1989. After WrestleMania III, Crockett also acquired the Universal Wrestling Federation, which broke from the NWA in 1986 and would also establish a second office in their old Dallas headquarters to fight WWF's control of the industry. JCP took the NWA's pay-per-view names and used it its best talent to draw ratings. Crockett was unable to beat McMahon, who took big bites out of Jim Crockett's promotion by successfully airing the 1987 Survivor Series and 1988 Royal Rumble on the same nights as Starcade 1987 and the 1988 Bunkhouse Stampede pay-per-view cards. This left him with no viable option other than selling out to media mogul Ted Turner, who renamed the Promotion World Championship Wrestling and continued to challenge Vince McMahon's monopoly of the industry. Turner promised a more athletic approach to the product, making Ric Flair the promotion's marquee wrestler and giving young stars big storylines and championship opportunities. That, that was exciting. I mean... That's all I watched. I never watched WWE. Very rarely. So moving on to the Monday Night Wars from 1995 to 2001. During the early 1990s, the WWF was being hindered by competing competing brands and nagging legal troubles. The largest troubles came from WCW, which competed for fans and dominated the industry during the years of 1997 to 1998. The WWF was forced to change itself and to overcome its competition by remodeling itself with its added bloodshed, violence, and more profane, sexually lewd characters. This new attitude error quickly dominated the style and nature of wrestling to become the far more teen oriented than ever before and made the WWF regain its status as wrestling's top company. The image of WCW changed when Eric Bischoff was appointed executive vice president of WCW in late 1993, where he signed former WWF stars and departed from their focus of in-ring action in favor of the WWF's approach. The WWF began to suffer immediately and started building new stars. The Monday Night Wars began in 1995 when WCW started Monday Nitro, a show that ran directly against Monday Night Raw. While starting the feud evenly, uh, the war escalated in 1996 with the formation of the heel stable, the New World Order. They helped WCW gain the upper hand when they became the most powerful group in professional wrestling. WCW also came up with the more legitimate, edgy storylines and characters overall for its cartoonish style. So while WWF and WCW rivalry was brewing, a third promotion was on its way to growing prominence. NWA Eastern Championship Wrestling renamed itself Extreme Championship Wrestling and left the NWA. ECW adapted a hardcore style of wrestling and it exposed the audience to levels of violence rarely seen in wrestling. The unorthodox styles and moves, controversial storylines, and intense, intense bloodthirst of ECW made it immensely popular amongst many wrestling fans in the 18 to 25-year-old demographic. Its intense fan base abate a small con- continuity uh, reached near cultism in the late 1990s and inspired hardcore style in other wrestling promotions, namely WWF and WCW. In 1997, the WWF gained momentum with the start of the Attitude Error. McMahon recast himself as the evil boss, known authoritatively 
authoritatively as Mr. McMahon, while an interesting character, it was McMahon's realistic feud with Stone Cold Steve, Stone Cold Steve Austin, who had proven to become a huge money-making draw for the company and become the company's most popular wrestler at the time that made the company's finale uh, finally dominate its competition. This was probably amongst the best of Vince McMahon's storylines, and it became at the time when uh, Bischoff was losing his vigor in WCW's affairs. The WWF gained infamy for its more sexually explicit, profane, and violent characters. Austin was the top superstar in the company, portraying a foul mouth, beer-swelling <laughs> anti-hero who regularly defied his boss. The Rock became a star of his cocky persona, his many catchphrases, and attractive charisma. Mankind gained popularity for enduring extreme pain, performing dangerous stunts, renowned amongst uh, the industry to set today. The stable Degeneration X was famous for its adult themes and established stars. The Undertaker added his fame because he was hardcore in most match matches, notably with Shawn Michaels and McFoley. His gimmick with which many consider to be the greatest in the history of professional wrestling and because of his overall dominance in a period in which he helped to put over new talent like Kane and win three world championships in his era. Through the collective success of these characters, the company had finally refocused itself in the 18 to 25-year-old demographic. By the start of 1999, both shows were getting ratings of 5.0 or higher, and over 10 million people tuned into Raw and Nitro every week. Wrestling continued to grow as wrestlers made the mainstream media. From 1998 to the momentum of was in the 19, in WWF's favor uh, for the remainder of the wars, with Raw dominating Nitro in the ratings. WCW continued its decline as their main eventers were in their 40s, pushing 40, and younger talent were never given the chance to be elevated to the main e event status, and their attempts at improving failed to turn the ratings tide, with Raw getting double the amount by 2000. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, when these guys just want to stay uh, on top, they, they got to know when you got to know when to change things up, you know, um, and that that was the problem. And instead of you go stay on the top, but in the meantime, cultivate some new stars so that you, so, know, you leave something behind instead of just like, you know, you're gone and that's it. You didn't, you didn't elevate anybody. You didn't give anybody to rub. You didn't help anybody up. If anything, those guys were, you know, abusive to most of the talent, you know, I mean, Scott Hall. Um, what's his name? Uh, JBL. All of them. Like, guys. You know, really, yeah. Really, really and, and not the nicest people. You know? So moving on, by 2001, the WWF had become the dominant professional wrestling promotion in the United States with the closure of WCW and ECW. ECW was in dire financial straits earlier that year, and Heyman fought bankruptcy on April 4th, 2001. WCW continued to lose more money and finally folded on March 23rd, 2001, with McMahon buying out the promotion. After more than 15 years of business in 2002, the WWF was renamed World Wrestling Entertainment to avoid trademark dispute with the World Wildlife Fund. In that same year, the WWE divided its roster into two uh, de facto wrestling promotions, Raw and SmackDown, named after two of its television wrestling programs. So let's see. The modern era of wrestling, 2002 to present. After the war, not long after closure of WCW and ECW, new promotions were founded in an attempt to cater to niche markets for Southern style, Lucha Libre, strong style, and hardcore wrestling. Styles that had been displaced by WWE, the most successful amongst these, have been Impact Wrestling, formerly totally, Total Nonstop Wrestling Action Wrestling, TNA, uh, and Ring of Honor, ROH, both launching in 2002. Ring of Honor tried to emulate the Japanese strong style while Impact presented themselves as an edgier contemporary alternative to WWE. By 2011, WWE's full name was retired as the company had entered the PG era. Uh, after their programming to a more conservative family-oriented slant as fans sought out more adult-oriented 
alternatives, independent promotions, and developmental territories began to gain more exposure, including combat zone wrestling and pro wrestling guerrilla. In 2014, United Artists Media Group and El Rey Network partnered to launch Lucha Underground, a serialized television drama, and Lucha Libre promotion affiliated with Lucha Libre AAA Worldwide. Both the show and promotion would receive positive reviews and notable media attention. In 2018, Lucha Underground held a joint show with Impact Wrestling at WrestleCon during WrestleMania weekend. Uh, Lucha Underground would ultimately be canceled in 2018 after four seasons. In 2017, the National Wrestling Alliance was acquired by Billy Corrigan, lead singer of the Smashing Pumpkins, including its name, rights, trademarks, and championship belts. Since the acquisition, the NWA has been uh, on a resurgence um, by its web series, 10 Pounds of Gold. By 2019, NWA will become a singular entity rather than a governing body or international uh, promotional alliance with the introduction of its own weekly series NWA Power later that year. So the Forbidden Door on September 1st, 2018, All In, an independent event promoted by Cody Rhodes and the Young Bucks, then members of the NJPW Stable Bullet Club, and featured talent from Ring of Honor, um, Lucha Libre, and NJPW. PW, New Japan Pro Wrestling, Impact Wrestling, Lucha Libre, AAA, Major League Wrestling, MLW, a formerly defunct promotion that resumed holding events during the previous year, and the NWA was held. Uh, the same event received notable media coverage for being the first non-WWE or World Championship Wrestling promoted professional wrestling event in the United States to sell 10,000 tickets in 1993. The show was promoted through storylines produced on web series such as the Young Bucks being the Elite, 10 Pounds of Gold, and Cody's Nightmare Family series, All of Us, the story of all of us. Um, let's see, owning to the success and critical acclaim, All In, Cody, and the Young Bucks will partner with Shaden and Tony Khan to launch a new wrestling promotion called All Elite Wrestling in 2019. The promotion quickly gained its notoriety from being its financial backing, which allowed them to secure a national weekly television deal AEW Dynamite on TNT and was seen by CBS Sports as the first national promotion to compete with WWE on a major level in nearly two decades. Wow. In 2020, MLW began incorporating story elements from Lucha Libre into its weekly series, MLW Fusion. Talent formerly associated with Lucha Underground were brought to MLW as a part of Aztec Underground Stable, and this will culminate with the launch of two subsequent miniseries, MLW Fusion, Alpha in Fall 2021, and MLW Aztec in 2022. On December 2020, 2nd, 2020, at AEW's Winter is Coming, Kenny Omega defeated John Moxley for the AEW title with help from Impact Executive Vice President Don Callis. This marked the beginning of working relationships between AEW Impact and Omega would make his first appearance signing uh, since winning the title on the following Tuesday episode of Impact. This made his in-ring debut at Hard to Kill event January 2021 after reuniting with his former Bullet Club stable members Carl Anderson and Doc Gallows. Omega would go on to win the Impact World Title Championship at Rebellion. Uh, New Japan Pro Wrestling, which had formed their U.S. base uh, named New Japan Pro Wrestling of America in 2019 and already established a working agreement with AEW, would reestablish a relationship with Impact in February 2021, leading to NJPW talent appearing at AEW events and Impact events. Commentators and analysts will come to describe these events as the establishment of the greater system, the greater territory system, and a concept dubbed the Forbidden Door. AEW President Tony Khan would dub himself the Forbidden Door during a paid segment for AEW Dynamite that aired on a February 2021 episode of Impact. So uh, that's more br- bringing you up to current of professional wrestling. So, oh God, all the way from the 1900s, we've learned that. Professional wrestling has 
just such a long history and, you know, just, and, and just keeps going. Yeah. I mean, look at uh, any sport, any, any business, any form of entertainment. Um, why have the Rolling Stones been around so long? Because they keep reinventing themselves. They come up with, when you think you, you haven't heard, you're not going to hear from them again. They come up with a song that's like, with the time, they put asses in the seats. They make people get up out of their yeah. seats. That's that's why so it has to be cyclical, because it is and it always has been a mirror of society's real reality. So why should it be any different now? We're in a flux. Everything's changing now. You got all these. I mean, there's more independent groups now than I ever saw. You know, honestly, the COVID you know kind of calmed down. They started packing these places. The explosion yeah. of. A million different wrestlers and a, hundred, a thousand different promotions to, to go along with it. So everyone has a chance to work now. And everyone who is working needs to find out uh, the history of professional wrestling and the business that they're in now and the business that, that you know, where it came from. And so that then they get to appreciate the business that they have a position in right now, which is what we're doing here on Wrestling Rewinds Wrestling Art archives is taking you back in time taking you back by taking you back so that digging digging up the truth as we put it here right tommy that's right on art wrestling archives so we hope you've enjoyed this episode of wrestling archives and hope that you'll join us uh next week we're here every sunday night on youtube monty and the pharaohs network so please uh like share and subscribe the show for the show Wrestling Rewind. Uh, and I am your host, Angel Amoroso. And for my co-host, Tommy Cairo, have a nice night and a See nice you. Good night. <laughs>